You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Ishtar, a bearded goddess of sex and war from ancient Mesopotamia. She was hot-tempered with a lust for conquest. And her priestesses were transgender. Oya, Yoruba goddess of the wind, storms, lightning, tornadoes, thunder, commerce, and war. She rules the destruction that comes before positive change. Atalanta, fleet-footed huntress and heroine of ancient Greece who joined the Argonauts. She helped slay the Caledonian boar and refused to marry any man who couldn't beat her in a foot race. She also became a PDA lion. Eats Papa Lotol. A skeletal warrior goddess of the Aztec pantheon, sometimes depicted with butterfly wings lined with obsidian knives. This episode is part of our Women of Myth series, where we interview podcasters, authors, scholars, and more about the amazing women of world mythology. It's based on our book of the same name, Women of Myth, illustrated by the amazing Sarah Richard. It's available wherever books are sold, or go to ancienthistoryfangirl.com to find links to a bookstore near you. Tell us the histories or the prayers, and we'll write them down. I'm Jenny Williamson. And I'm Jen McMenemy. And this is Ancient History Fangirl. Today, we are so thrilled to welcome Dr. Camilla Townsend onto our podcast for our Women of Myth series. She's a professor of history at Rutgers University, specializing in Native American and indigenous history in the United States and Latin America, and her book Fifth Son won the Kundal History Prize. Welcome, and thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's a delight to be here. So the reason I was so psyched to have you on the show is because I discovered this incredible Aztec goddess. Uh, We wrote this book called Women of Myth, which was all about women in world mythology, And one of the first goddesses I discovered in my research was an Aztec goddess called Itzpapalotl, and we covered her in our book, and I found out the primary source for her was an Aztec codex written in Nahuatl and Spanish. Nahuatl is the Aztec language. It was written by a Nahua survivor, or perhaps the descendant of a survivor, of the conquest, so an indigenous Aztec writer. And I started reading about the history of these incredible documents, and I found out about your book, The Fifth Son, which is a history of the Aztec people, both pre- and post-conquest, that you translated directly from those codices in both languages. And I just thought that was so cool, and I wanted to talk to you all about it. Well, it was a a long haul, so to speak. I I started to study the the Nahuatl language in the late 90s. There are still over a million speakers of Nahuatl in Mexico today. Uh, Sadly, though, many of them you know, their ancestors were reduced to poverty. And so most of them do not go on to get their PhDs and study documents from the 16th century. 
that's beginning to change. And eventually, I think we'll have a bunch of indigenous people reading their own ancestors' papers and writing about it. It's just beginning. There are a number of them in grad school now. But in the interim, <laughs> you have people like me studying the language over many years until we get good enough to um, make some progress in, in reading these. There are people who have been studying uh, Nahuatl language or Aztec language documents for a long time, but they have mostly studied those that were produced by Indian people working hand in hand with the friars. So the friars would say, for example, tell me about the goddess Isaac Papalot, and they would answer. But the whole framework was controlled by Spaniards. The documents that I studied are called the Shupohuali, roughly the, the yearly accounts. And they were uh, written entirely for their own descendants. The, the Spaniards didn't even know they were writing them. So we get a, a quite a, a different, more intimate, more private view of their culture. And, and it, it has been a lot of fun. It's been a great couple of decades, I have to say, as I've, as I've worked on this. That is such incredible and important work. Jen and I, in our podcast and in our book, what we really tried to do was, because we're working with cultures, some of them had this history of colonialism. We tried to bypass the Western lens or the, you know, the European lens as much as we could in areas where that was an issue. And that's something I see you doing in your work as well. That's certainly my goal, right? Um, and that's why it was so important to me to start working with these documents that were produced sort of beyond the radar screen of the Spaniards, because then you're no longer, you know, answering questions, sort of being almost being set up to give the Spaniards the answers they wanted, but rather they were just talking about whatever aspects of their history they they wanted to talk about. Okay, um, and mythological stories and elements of religion come out in in those histories as well. That's so amazing. That's really incredible. So why haven't these documents been treated as accurate historical documents in the past? I remember you talking about this in your book. Right. That's interesting. There's been sort of a pendulum that has swung back and forth. When scholars first realized that Nahuatl language documents existed, well, they realized it a long time ago, but when lots of people realized it and they began to think about it and write about it in the middle of the 20th century, the world was changing. It was right after World War II. People were becoming more liberal. I mean, this, you know, the 60s were on the horizon and then they were upon us. And people were very happy. And they sort of said, oh, okay, so here's Motezuma's perspective. And they took it very literally and plopped it right down next to, say, uh, reports that were written for the Holy Roman Emperor. And it ended up feeling very unbalanced because on one hand, you have, say, a story, an ancient story about the, the, the sighting of a god right next to it. Uh, what I'll call a serious report to the Holy Roman Emperor about how many ships they have and how many guns they have. And if anything, I think it just kind of exacerbated people's prejudices. Then the pendulum swung and people said, see, these are just uh, sort of almost silly propagandistic documents that we can't take seriously. After all, they're not like the serious reports that were given to the Holy Roman Emperor, for example. By the white people, yeah. Right. So now we can't take them seriously at all. Maybe they reveal a little bit about culture. Well, when I came along, I thought, you know, one thing we could do is set aside the Spanish sources, because part of the problem is that what the indigenous sources said and what the Spanish sources said contradicted each other. But the Spanish sources were written by people who didn't speak any Nahuatl, had never lived among the Aztecs, didn't really know what they were talking about. So when I just set those aside and was left only with the indigenous histories, they did back each other up. Um, so suddenly the, the sense of, oh, we don't know what to believe, it's all chaos, um, disappeared because they were mostly saying the same thing. I hasten to add, 
they were mostly saying the same thing for, say, one to two generations before conquest. In other words, the period that people were likely to really remember from their own lives. When they were writing about things that had happened, say, 200 or 400 years ago, it became much more mythologized. But that's actually true, you know, over medieval Europe, too. When they're telling about what's going on right now, they'll say this friar did that, this king did that, this princess did that. And it sounds like that's probably what happened. And then they say, and this all happened because 300 years ago, King Arthur landed on a certain, you know, a certain coast and found a magical sword. So human beings have a tendency, I think, to, to, to describe what's happening in their own lives more or less accurately, obviously through their own lenses, okay, um, and then get a little carried away when they're talking about things that happened several hundred years ago. So I've tried to separate it out in the book and in the first chapter suggest what kind of stories did they tell about their deep past. But then when we get closer to the period of, of, of conquest, the period when these things actually got written down in the, in the Roman letters, I do take them very seriously because what they say does add up. If you ignore what the Spaniards said, just look at what the different indigenous people said, you get a very coherent and kind of commonsensical history. You, you get the story that you would expect almost. A little more violent than sometimes than one would wish that it were, but certainly a history that makes sense. Um, so that, that's the approach that I've taken, that we can believe these sources for roughly a generation or so before they were written. The method of storytelling, I was really captivated by your description of that in your book. The way Aztec writers would talk about a historical event was they would present it from several different perspectives. And it might seem like they contradict because you would hear the same story from different viewpoints, but that's actually a way of arriving at the truth. Is that accurate? Yes, that I found this so fascinating when I, when I realized this. Scholars had sometimes said that these shupohuali, these yearly accounts, were somewhat contradictory within themselves and certainly repetitive because they'll go over certain events two, four, and in one case, even eight times, and they'll have different perspectives on it. And it all just, it just runs together. There's no marker. So you think that they're just repeating themselves. Well, eventually looking closely at enough of these, I realized they seem to be doing this on purpose. That is every time they come to a serious event, they're repeating it. And then I looked very closely at what they were saying. And you can tell sometimes about which community is being represented because they will sometimes say, so here in Tochtepec, this happened. Or when we from Atlashkala arrived there, we saw that. So you, you can figure out who is we. And what became clear is that these city-states, I think is the best word for them, Altepet, that were divided into different neighborhoods or sub-communities, okay, that each neighborhood or subcommunity was was speaking. These were oral performances, and they were speaking one at a time. And when you look in the annals, that is the the year counts that we have, they even refer to different speakers coming together to tell a history. Um, and I think the texts that we have that survive show us what they were doing. You know, one person from this neighborhood or this subcommunity would speak first, then the next, then the next. They would do this when they were talking about a particularly troubled time, like a war or a decision to break up their, their state into two or four um, separate states. And I think they were doing it. I mean, we can't be sure why they did that, but it makes sense. This is an oral performance with the whole community gathered. People are going to be feeling, wait, 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 that's not how my neighborhood felt that it happened. That's not what we would, that's not how we would describe that war. But if you let each subgroup have their say, um, and then at the end say, and that is how it was, then everybody feels that they've been represented. And of course, the whole point of these history telling evenings was to 
to make people feel like they belong to something greater than themselves. So naturally, they wanted everyone to feel that their point of view was represented. Very different from the way Westerners have told our history, obviously, where there's just, you know, one narrative until very recently, but traditionally. It's like they understood postmodern truths long before we did, right? I'm just sort of like having a little moment where I'm like, just tell me all the secrets. <laughs> <laughs> See, this is why Jenna was texting you going, this book is absolutely amazing when I was reading it. You know, like the Western European custom we encounter often is that there's one narrative and we use that to control the narrative. And we have encountered people in our podcast in history who did that deliberately to control the narrative. There's no counter narrative to Julius Caesar's invasion of Gaul. Vercingetorix wasn't writing stuff down. It's so important and innovative that this is how the Aztecs approached recording their history. You make a very good point. Europeanists have mentioned to me sort of how jealous they feel sometimes, right? Because as you say, Vercingetorix didn't write things down. They they wish that they had some some insight into, for example, what the Gauls were thinking, right? So we are very fortunate that these documents exist. So these codices were written down versions of something that would have been an oral tradition, right? Right. That's an excellent question and, and an excellent point. That is, there was a long, long tradition of telling these histories together in groups in the evenings. Then when the Spaniards came, the friars asked for some of the young men to come and live with them as students so that they could study Christianity. Can I just stop us for a minute, just because we tend to be quite ancient. Can we just give the listeners the time frame that we're talking about here? Right. So early 1500s, the, the Spaniards arrived first in 1519, and, and by the 1520s, the friars were setting up these little schools uh, for indigenous boys, and they were boys. Okay? I'm not being sexist. That's simply the fact. Okay? And their idea was, we're going to teach them the Roman alphabet so that they can uh, learn to read in Spanish and Latin, actually, so that they can study um, the Bible and, and just help to proselytize in their communities. And the boys did, many of them did do that, not all, but many of them did grow up to be Christians, etc. But meanwhile, they took this tool, the Roman alphabet home, and they were really, shall I say, smitten with it. They, they, they really liked it. They had a, a writing tradition in the Aztec world, a, a glyphic, you know, pictorial writing system, but only how to put this? Well, there are two, there are two problems with it, shall we say. One was that only priests could could read it. It wasn't something that everybody learned to do. So it was sort of hidden knowledge. And as the priests began to die, people were losing touch with it. The other problem is that it was never meant to record speech. It was these glyphs were in effect mnemonic devices. There would be, for example, a picture on a, in a timeline of a temple burning. And that was a, a reference to a war against, for example, Cholula. And that would be the trigger, the, the prompt to the speaker. Now, here is where you should tell about the war against Cholula. But what these young boys were and young men were realizing is that with this Roman alphabet, this phonetic system, it was like a tape recorder. You could transcribe whole speeches. And in one case, I, I actually could watch in the documents a middle-aged man figuring this out, the sort of the power of the system. There was a court case and a man from Quantin Shan had gone, a chief had gone to to Mexico City to defend his people's lands. This was a man who had been a chief even before the conquest. And in the court records, it says he asked to have the statement repeated back to him. And they read it and he nodded gravely. So right there, you know that this man who had become an adult before 1519 was seeing firsthand 
that this is a system to literally annotate the sounds of speech so that anybody can repeat them back. So they had the problem that the the people who were trained in the glyphs were dying. They had the problem that it never was the full story. It was just a mnemonic device. And they're handed this tool. And it's rather like being handled metal agricultural tools. They thought, great, we'll be even more indigenous than we were before. We'll use this to to plant corn and beans and do what we like to do, but, but more efficiently. Likewise, some of these young men took this Roman alphabet and asked their fathers and mothers and uncles and grandmothers, tell us the histories or the prayers, give these oral performances, and we'll write them down. And so that's how we have these documents. These young boys were quickly, you know, writing, 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 writing everything that the older people would say. And sometimes there's even glimpses of that process. Like at one point in, in, in one description, someone is telling about an, uh, an ancient warlord's costume and whoever is speaking stops and says, it looks a little bit like that meter thing that the Spanish bishop wore next when, you know, when we were told we had to go to church. Then he goes right back to telling his ancient uh, warrior story. Okay? So every once in a while, you actually have, you're in that room with them in that moment where the older person is speaking and the younger one is writing it down. And then these things got copied and recopied and recopied over the years. And sometimes things were added. And gradually, by the time they're working on them in the 1600s or even... That's probably the latest is, well, the latest, latest is early 1700s. By then, they have forgotten some elements of the old tradition and are just writing like any other colonial citizen of the Spanish world. But the earlier texts are very much kind of pre-conquest and ancient in their metaphors, the stories they tell, the way they talk about things. It's just so good to see like the Western language, the Roman language used for like a good purpose as opposed to how it was usually used. We see a lot of like, particularly like Irish or Celtic stories, they all come down to us through the Western lens. They weren't written down in the same way. So they all come down to us sort of through a Christian lens for the most part. Occasionally we can find some stuff before, but a lot of it, we always say your Christian monk is showing. Like you can see sort of a demonization of women or their roles as as how they should be fit to sort of Christianity. Like Morgan Le Fay is a really good example. But the idea that like, you know, these boys were educated and they were able to take that knowledge and then preserve their culture. It's just, that just wows me. It's wonderful. Right. And I want to acknowledge, again, by the middle or late colonial period, there's a lot going on that resembles, as you say, what happened in Ireland. So we do get texts where they're saying, say, in the, in the late 1600s, horrible things about gay people that they never would have said, you know, 200 years earlier. Um, so that does happen. But we have this window for a while while they're just writing things down just the way they they used to be, which is very cool. That's amazing. What do we know about the writers of the codices? That's a great question. And, and, and they're distinct. That is the writers versus the, the people in the stories. The people writing them down were young men. They were the ones that the friars were willing to teach. They may have taught this alphabet to their sisters and wives and daughters. And there may have been some women who wrote, but very few, judging from the papers that we have left. It probably happened somewhere, but not in any, to any great extent. So there's been some misunderstanding of people who thought, so we're still only getting the kind of highly educated elite male point of view, albeit a Native American one, highly educated elite Native American males. But I would argue that that's not quite true because the stories and histories and prayers that they're writing down were communal productions. And in fact, they often show what we might today call a sort of feminist sensibility. 
there's one story where they're clearly kind of laughing at mocking an old king who is very sexist and is demanding uh, women concubines that have certain kind of butts. I mean, they're also trying to make people laugh. These concubines have to have big butts. But the point of the story also is sort of how pathetic this guy is. And he ends up causing a war, which he loses. Okay, he, he loses that war. So and on the surface, you think, oh, that's sexist. Here's a story about a king demanding women with a certain size butt. But when you read the whole thing, you realize women around the campfire would have been laughing at this too and snorting at this ridiculous, pathetic guy. His name was Waymach, which means big gift. <laughs> <laughs> like, again, this is sarcastic. The idea, this is, he's no one's gift to no one. <laughs> okay, right, or anything. Okay, right. He thinks he's a big gift. So even though the guys writing these stories down, taking notes, so to speak, in the 1500s were all guys, um, I think we are getting a record of a communal tradition that women had been part of making. And in the stories themselves, we hear about women telling stories. Women were allowed to speak. Uh, there was no sense that women were supposed to be walled off, not at all in ancient Mexico. So we weren't there, but given that it comes up in the text, there's indirect proof that women at that time were also participating in singing and telling stories, etc. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, and was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MK Ultra? Wait, what? <laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. In all human history, there are few stories like that of ancient Egypt. On the banks of the Nile, these people created one of the most enduring and significant cultures. Their tale comes to life in the History of Egypt podcast. Every week, we explore the tales of this amazing culture, from the legendary days of creation and the gods, all the way to Cleopatra, and everything in between. The History of Egypt podcast is written and produced by a trained Egyptologist. We go much deeper than your average documentary or magazine article to uncover tales of life, great endeavours, and the amazing arc of a mighty kingdom. The History of Egypt podcast is available on all podcasting platforms, apps, and websites. Come, visit Ancient Egypt, and experience a legendary culture.
let's talk about women in Aztec culture. What role did women play in pre-conquest Aztec culture, particularly in matters of rulership and primogeniture? Right. So women had a very important role and were not disparaged. They didn't have a word for misogyny. I don't think that that was really an element of their culture. However, I do not want to imply that everyone was equal. That is, the word that scholars have sometimes used is complementary. That is, that there was an understanding that you need both. So for instance, women almost never ruled. It could happen, but almost never, because the high-level ruling men had many wives and, you know, and, and many other palace women. So there was always a male heir. They just didn't have the problems in Christian Europe where sometimes there was no male heir. So it almost never happened that a woman actually was the tratuani, the, the speaker, meaning the ruler. But how power passed, um, it didn't just go from father to son. It went in a complicated way through royal families, partly based on mutual choice. And it all had to do with who your mother was, too. That is, you couldn't just be the son of Montezuma or the son of the Emperor Itzcoat. You had to have the right royal mother as well. So in a sense, power passed through the female line as much as it did through the male line. And it was understood that that woman, this, the wife whose children were going to inherit, was powerful, was important, because she was tightly allied with her own people who were politically powerful also. Um, and that is very clear in the records. Likewise, in, say, economy or agriculture, men did most of the farming, but women did most of the weaving. And the weaving was often where they got the family or the clan, the lineages, profits from when they, you know, when they needed extra money, in effect. So nobody would ever have imagined that women didn't matter. I mean, I guess this is true in any world where there is no daycare center, no restaurant, no cleaning service, no vacuum, not even any stores. You know, what women did in terms of grinding the corn, preparing the food, making sure the kid didn't die, <laughs> making the clothes, making the glue they needed to make the weapons, everything was understood to be of essential importance. So they did have sharp division of roles but the roles weren't hierarchized, I guess I can say. Okay? People understood that you needed both. And once in a while, a woman did rule, but that was very, very rare. So in your book, I was reading this part about women's role in leadership and in the palace. It's like each woman in a royal household was a representative of the people that she came from and would be treated accordingly. Are there some interesting stories about that that you can think of? Very much so. There are lots of these stories, and I find them all quite fascinating. I mean, it, it must have meant within these palace walls that things were sometimes very tense. Can you imagine? I mean, oi, oi, oi. So, for instance, uh, there were two groups of the Aztecs, the Tlatelolco that I mentioned before and the Mexica, the, the dominant group. And at one point, the Tlatelolco decided they want to break away from the Mexica. They don't want to be the junior partner anymore. And, of course, their king is married to the younger sister of the Mexica king, because that's how things were done, right, to tie the noble families together. And he began to insult her, even to beat her, oh, and make her stand naked. I mean, sexual shaming. I mean, it was really quite a violent story. But she escapes. She leaves. She doesn't, the story is not about how she deserved this, or this is women's lot, or anything like that. She, she leaves and makes her way back to her brother's palace, where she tells him everything, not only what has been happening to her, but also who her husband, the, the wife batterer, 
has been meeting with and has been trying to ally with in terms to, in order to launch an uprising. So armed with this information, the Mexica king is able to go and quickly you know, attack these other places and bring them down. So the story gives her credit, in a sense, for having made that war relatively painless for most people, except the plotters. Now, that may not be exactly true. Who knows right, how that was embellished, but we, it is certainly more than likely. We know there was a war, and it is more than likely that the king of Tlatelolco had a wife who was closely related to the king of the Mexica, and that she would have played some sort of role. So to that extent, I think we can say it's, it's history. It's true. These were the guys with a really good market, right? Yes. <laughs> That's right. That's right. Yeah, I remember reading about that. I was like, I would love to go to that market. <laughs> it's really interesting, too, because it tells us a lot about what that life would have looked like for women in the palace and how their roles were taken seriously by the, the king they were living with and within the structure of the other women there, like, and how important it was actually to have all good relations with all your wives or else, you know, they know everything, everything. <laughs> exactly. They might bring valuable intelligence back to the enemy, you know. <laughs> They knew everything and right, political complications could ensue. Right? And the point is they were there also for valuable intelligence when you think about it. Like they're there to give their, their city-states knowledge to the man they're married to so that they can have better relations and understandings of each other. And so that they are kind of like one big community. So yeah, treating them poorly, they deserve what they get. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. You said earlier that it was very rare that women were speakers or like, you know, leaders of their communities. Were there any? I really don't think there were. There are some people who think that there was a woman who ruled very briefly in the Aztec line. I see no evidence for it in the Aztec sources. The Spaniards are the ones who talk about it, because as you know, in their world, when there wasn't a male heir, a, a woman would inherit. So I, I think I have to say no, according to my own beliefs. But there are scholars who would say, oh, yes, yes, there was this atototilistli, but it comes from the pen of a Spaniard. It doesn't really make sense. Um, it was a war-based culture, and they had dozens of sons. They didn't need to. And it's not in the Nahuatl language sources, so I don't think it happened. Yeah, I think the fact that it's not in those sources, like they would talk about it, I'm sure. I think so. They talk about a lot. Yeah. I think I think the way you described it, women had a very particular role that had a lot of power behind it because essentially they were the keepers of the culture, right? Like they knew that their men were going off to fight and probably die. And it was up to them to preserve their culture, their way of life, and to pass that down to the next generation, which is an incredibly valuable and important role. Potentially, there might have been martial women because you always have women who don't fit into whatever the binary is at the time and whose services are best used elsewhere. But would lots of men follow them? If your rulership, you've got like a bevy of sons to pick from. And there would be lots and lots and lots of sons just based on how the family structure was. Yes, exactly. Did you ever have women warriors or no? Yes and no. It's a confusing subject. In the indigenous annals, in two different places, they do refer to women, especially from a certain ethnic group, as fighting. However, in both cases, it happens when their people are about to lose a war. So it seems to have been something that was like a last-ditch effort, perhaps not even to save the situation, but to say to their soon-to-be conquerors, we're going down, but you have none of our respect. You have none of our loyalty. It's quite fascinating, actually. Now, all the ethnic groups do not mention this, so I don't think that they all did this. But it, 
again, this comes up in sources that were not prepared for Spaniards. So this is not just, a, oh, yes, we had our own Amazons too, right? I, I think this was spontaneously told and told more than once. Um, so I think it did it did happen. There are also some images in paintings, Coda paintings that were done after the conquest. Not many, but there are some that show women holding swords, Aztec style swords with the obsidian blades. So there's there's something there, but we can't know how much. In in the written sources, the stories that they tell, they they certainly mostly talk about men as warriors, women as not just mothers but survivors. Men's role was to fight and try to save the people. Women's role was okay, but if you lose, survive, so that the children there will be children, there will be a future for our people in some other way. Grit your teeth and bear it, and make it through to the next generation. Teach them our ways. So. In general, women weren't being raised to be warriors, but there is this running current of evidence. I wish I could give you more specific a more specific answer, but we just don't know. I'm just really interested if like this idea of female warriors when it's non-cultural, right? So like classical Greeks didn't have really female warriors, if it's something along class lines. So if you see more martial women where like the the options are you come from a smaller place and you have to know how to fight and hunt and do all the things that men would do because there aren't enough people or because that's your, you know, that, that's more aligned with your way of life. You know, it, that is very possible. Tlatelolco, uh, this city state that I'm talking about, this ethnic group that I'm talking about was remarkably smaller than the other Aztec sort of branch of the family. It's unprovable, but it's very interesting to think about. As we call it, it's our fan fiction, right? <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> you know, this actually brings me around to a topic that I remember you, Jen, bringing up when we were first looking at this area of history, women dying in childbirth and how childbirth was seen as kind of a battle for women, like that is women's battle. And I did see that coming up somewhere in your book. Is that is that something that rings a bell? Absolutely. Women had access, in a sense, to the same contact with the gods as men did, women through childbirth and men through battlefields. So they did not believe in heaven. They believed that here on earth, this is heaven. This is as good as it's ever going to get, and we should appreciate it and love it and find what's beautiful about it, because this is our moment. They did think, though, that a few special people would live on for about four more years. Several sources say four years feeding the gods, being close to the gods. And those people were, were people who either died on the battlefield or were taken prisoner and sacrificed after a war. So people who died in war, male or female, and women who died in childbirth. Because in both cases, you were giving your life for your people, in effect, um, and then giving your life for the future, giving your life for others. And so in both cases, you were selected to, to feed your blood would then feed the gods and you would live um, in this wonderful world of birds and butterflies for another four years. Even they, though, would ultimately be dead and gone. So even for them, earth is heaven. Earth is the best that there is. So you must make the most of it and do, you know, live your best self. That's so fascinating because I remember I was doing um, an episode on vampires and I, I was looking at Aztec mythology and there was something in it. Obviously, this is very much from a Western lens and it's why we didn't wind up covering it on the podcast. Um, there was a thing in it about um, women who died in childbirth then coming back kind of as like these evil spirits. And I didn't know whether or not that came from a Western lens or that is something they believed. And it, it just, I couldn't get my head around it. And I was like, no, I don't want to cover something that isn't quite right. 
I'm glad you took that path because you are quite right. That is, much of what is said about Aztec religion actually comes from things that were written by Spaniards decades later who didn't know what they were talking about. It's, it's actually a problem, I mean, even in the scholarship, because a lot of scholars also do not study Nahuatl. I think that's going to change, actually, now that indigenous people are entering the field. So they use as their sources these things that the Spaniards wrote, and you get a lot of crazy stuff in there that there's just no evidence for in the Nahuatl language sources. I always find whenever you see like vampire mythology that feels like it's quite close to like something you've seen in the West and doesn't have its own sort of uniqueness to it. Like we looked at, um, what was the African mythology we looked at that was, a, that was the fly? Do you remember? It was a vampire that we actually had like a, um, an expert in infectious diseases come on and talk about this with us. And she said that the way that the story was told about this vampire was almost exactly the same as how malaria was passed on through mosquitoes or something, something like that. Yeah. That was sort of why we kind of gave credence to that, because you can see how it worked. I think we talked about Chinese hopping vampires as well. But this story in particular, the expert came on and, and we were looking at it and we're like, we don't exactly know. It feels quite similar to stuff we've seen somewhere else. And in the end, we cut it because we were like, we didn't cut the African stuff. It was the it was the Aztec stuff because we weren't 100% sure. Yeah, that's what I mean, the Aztec stuff. Yeah, yeah, we weren't 100% on it because the sources just weren't there. And, it, you know, I kind of always feel like when your vampire myths all seem to be coming from the same place, there's something not right, you know? It's different when you're talking about sort of like Greece and that area of Europe because they were all trading and interconnected. But anything ancient should have its own root source. And also, it seemed to be demonizing women who died in childbirth, which I was like, but they're also describing women who die in childbirth as women who are fighting a war. So why would they be come back as demons? Like, that doesn't make sense. You have to wonder. Right, right, right. What are some misconceptions that we have today about the Aztec people that you found disproven in these source documents? Right. I would say that the Aztecs probably have the worst reputation of any human group, That that is. There's this sense that they just were beyond the pale, you know, that they, they killed thousands of people, uh, cutting their hearts out while they were still beating so that they could joyously give them to the God. I mean, there's a sense that, that no one, no other culture has ever been this sort of uniformly evil. And then there's this modern version of that story, which is that everyone in Mexico ran to side with Cortez because they all hated the Aztecs so much, which is it's well-intentioned. They're trying to give indigenous people agency, but it's really part of the same old myth that the Aztecs were sort of uniformly evil and hated. In fact, the sources show them laughing and dancing and writing poetry and telling jokes, being very much like other people. There was human sacrifice at the heart of their religion, but frankly, there was human sacrifice at the heart of all ancient religions and certainly all ancient Native American religions. I'd argue all Western religions, too. <laughs> right, exactly. There's, there are stories. I mean, one could argue that the Bible, that the blood, the, the bread and the host goes back to ancient uh, sort of associations with that. The one thing that the Aztecs were guilty was the ruling class in the late 1400s and early 1500s did go a little nuts, the way one could argue our own State Department did during the period of the Dirty Wars in the 60s, 70s, and 80s. That is, sometimes groups of very powerful men do get carried away, shall we say, to put it charitably. They took an occasional practice that everybody did and turned it into a political terror tactic. And we, we know that because actually in one of the sources, they even say so. They say we would, when we wanted to bring a new area into our empire, we would send people to bring some of their young people to watch the worst of the ceremonies 
and then send them home so that they would tell their people, let's not fight back, let's just join voluntarily. Because if we fight them, then our prisoners of war, our young warriors will be taken and sacrificed in these grisly ceremonies. If we just join them, we'll be part of a powerful empire and we can avoid all of that. There's an actual quote saying, in, in this way, we managed to undo them. So it's clear that they were purposely doing this to terrorize people and maximize their power and their wealth. And some of the poetry and songs that we have that are pre-conquest actually lament this. So some of the more artistic types clearly felt that this was tragic, this much warfare, this much death. So there's no evidence that all Aztecs or even most Aztecs um, just you know, loved cutting the beating hearts out of people and throwing them down stairways. This is something that a particular group of men brought to a high art for their own selfish political Machiavellian reasons and that not all Aztecs approved of. I mean, you see that again, like Julius Caesar's conquest of Gaul, right? You know, if you came to him willingly, you got an easier route. If he had to conquer you, he really made an example of you. So, I mean, it's just all there when you're, I guess, empire building. I remember when I was learning about the Aztecs, like, and, and this is so many years ago, I'm not going to date myself, but it was a long time ago. The Aztecs were always pitted against the Mayans. And I remember like the Mayans always being like the virtuous ones and the Aztecs were the scary ones. And I don't know how history of this is being taught today. Obviously, like it should not be taught that way. <laughs> you know, and, and that, now that we have finally broken the code and can read the Maya glyphs, we see that they were actually very much like the Aztecs. Lots of human sacrifice, lots of terror tactics. Right. Okay. But exactly. It was a way in that earlier period, holding up the Mayas as the peaceful, sweet ones was a way to avoid accusations of racism. We could have our horrible, brutal savages, woo, the Aztecs with cutting the hearts out and not feel racist because in the next breath we'd say, oh, but of course the Mayas were just sweeties, which was, of course, a form of objectification too, right? They're the noble savages, right? In fact, the whole Mesoamerican uh, world had a very similar culture in terms of war, gender relations, religion, etc., which makes sense, kind of like in, a, in the ancient classical world, lots of mutual influences, etc. Like a lot of times we hear from the Aztec and that the Mesoamericans had so many like human sacrifices. You know, we get that idea that the Western cultures didn't do that. But all you have to do is look at the gladiator games, a lot of which were funerary games to honor like some rich Roman who died. And all those people who die, you know, they're not directly human sacrifices, but they are. And that was also their form of punishment. And they were just as bloodthirsty, if not more so. It wasn't just the gladiators and indirect human sacrifice either. I mean, the Romans in particular were very self-righteous about how they did not sacrifice people, but they sacrificed intersex kids. We did a whole deep dive on that, like directly. Have you ever wondered what really happened to Amelia Earhart or the lost colony of Roanoke? Do you ever find yourself scouring the internet for vicious Victorians and their murders by gaslight? Or perhaps you're just sick and tired of women being constantly misrepresented or plain lied about throughout history. If so, join me, Katie Charlwood, history harlot and reader of books on Who Did What Now, the history podcast that's not your history class part of the Area of Media Network. Available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Adios, au revoir, au revoir de zen, my friends. Bye-bye. I'll be seeing you. Hello, everyone. It's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. 
And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. So who were some important women in Aztec history? There was a woman, Chimala Xochitzin, uh, shield flower in their ancient myths of, about their history, but real women. Malinsin, I would say, and Tequichpotzin are the, the two most important that we know a great deal about. Malinsin was someone who the Aztecs sold into slavery among the Maya, and then she was given to Cortez after he won a battle against the Maya. So she hated the Aztecs because they had attacked her people, and she worked with the Spaniards translating for them. Today in Mexico, they call her a, a traitor. Um, but of course, she wasn't really. That's, you know, looking back on it, we think, why was she working with the Spaniards against the Indians? But she didn't think of the Aztecs as her friends or her fellow people. They were the ones who had attacked her people and sold her into slavery. And then the other woman who was quite important was one of Montezuma's surviving daughters, who was christened Isabel, but her name was Tequichpotzin, her Nahuatl name, which just means lordly daughter. And she ended up being married to four different Spaniards, mostly in the Spanish effort to maximize the sense on the part of the people that their royal line was now being enfolded into the Spanish world. But she also did it, I think, to save herself and her children. Her two daughters she sent into to nunneries, to, you know, to, to convents. It's very understandable why she would do that. Yes, exactly, exactly, right. Um, so she was she was an important figure in the early years uh, after the conquest. Uh, Malinsin sadly died um, in 1529, not long after the conquest. But she was she was the most important, most she was the most powerful person in the hemisphere for a few years because she was the one. She learned Spanish quite quickly, and she spoke Mayan, Nahuatl, and Spanish, um, and so she was essential until other translators were trained. Who was Shieldflower? Um, Shieldflower was undoubtedly a mythical person, although there would have been girls and women like her. In the stories or the, so the myth histories the Aztecs used to tell about their past, when their people who had migrated down from the American Southwest, and when their people arrived in central Mexico, they hired themselves out to indigenous people who were already settled there as mercenaries. And eventually they decided they were tired of being mercenaries. They wanted to they wanted to have their own kingdom and they declared their own kingdom, but uh, they, they did it in a very belligerent way so that the other tribes around them got very angry and, and sent uh, war parties, a united war party. So they were creamed. And so the princess, the, the daughter of the chief, was sacrificed. And in the stories, she is so brave. They're, they're waiting days and days to sacrifice her. And she stands up and says, bring it on. You know, I, I am ready to, to go to my gods. Okay. Um, so she's a sort of symbolic of the Aztecs. But there would certainly have been leading ladies, daughters and younger sisters of high chiefs who were sacrificed. And these people, the Aztecs, uh, as they first got into the area, were very tough, very belligerent as they sort of carved their way out. And I have every reason to believe that some of their daughters did have that kind of guts, although I'm not willing to say there was one girl who said exactly what they said that they said several hundred years later. Yeah. So she's like semi-mythical, basically. Yes, right. 
But I think it's cool that in sort of their their founding myth history, it's a young woman, not a young man, who is saying, bring it on. There's nothing you can do to me that I can't handle. She's like the toughest person in this extremely tough group of people. Tough world, right, right. Who is your favorite Aztec goddess? And what are the goddesses in their pantheon like? Um, this is an answer you're not going to like. A lot of what gets written about the Aztec pantheon is probably wrong. Again, we we get most of our information from interviews that Spaniards did. There was some sort of figure, Tlazolteot, like it's sort of filth deity, okay, who seems to have been largely feminine, probably because of menstrual blood, liquids that come out when you give birth, a very fecund, very powerful, largely feminine deity associated with bodily fluids and filth and, and who, who was powerful and feared. And I suppose I like her the best. But again, if we were to try to line up, you know, what we really know about these different gods and goddesses, we'd be making it up. And people have. One thing that, that they did not do, that Aztecs did not do in private, was write much about these gods. They come up in the histories, but the only place where we have pictures and annotations god by god you know in a list are in sources really orchestrated by spaniards and some of the things they say this don't seem right at all like they'll say this one abhorred human sacrifice there's nothing in the nahuatl language sources that make me think that any of their gods abhorred human sacrifice an essential part of being a god was welcoming sacrifice so i think they wanted to create the spaniards wanted to create a sort of Greek pantheon-like religion that they could then understand and categorize. But I'm not sure that that really existed. Remember that there was no widespread writing. The priests had some glyphs, but there was no widespread writing. So every village had its own way of telling stories. And most scholars think now that there were just sort of whiffs of ideas of different gods who varied from village to village and over different time periods as, as people understood. Because there was no encyclopedia that everybody was memorizing. There was no religious school that everyone in town was going to. So the best answer I can give is I like this idea of this powerful female principle of human filth and, and bodily fluids that, from which life comes. I'm not willing to get more specific because I'll end up lying and saying things that aren't really true. Okay, right. So basically any account of Aztec gods and goddesses should be taken with a huge grain of salt is what I'm hearing here. I'm afraid so, right. As appealing as some of those books are, it's we got to take it with a huge grain of salt. That is so disappointing because It's Papalotl was one of my absolute favorite ones. <laughs> and who knows, maybe maybe there's a lot of truth there. We just we just don't know because we're getting it through the Spaniards. Um and this is also probably going to get a similar answer, I have a feeling, but are there any interesting female monsters in Aztec mythology? Again, we can't be sure. There is a sense of a cave, sometimes portrayed as like wide open jaws, sometimes a cave out of which a being is diving forth. And there is an association between caves and vaginas that's in the songs, that's real. And I suppose implicitly with uteruses, too, now that I think of it, given the sort of the diving god coming out of the cave, that's a birthing image. There's no definite proof that they thought of these open jaws or caves as female. But there, again, there is definite proof that there was some association with vaginas and implicitly with uteruses. So I, I think when we see carved open jaws, we can't assume, but we can guess that there was likely a sense of femaleness associated with that. 
But beyond that, I can't say. So I must be driving you guys crazy at this point. When we come to religion, I keep saying, I don't know, I'm not sure. But I just don't want to be one of those people like decades ago who, who say things that really come from the, the Spaniards. Femaleness could be powerful. So there's no reason to think that they couldn't imagine sort of a voracious beast being female. Nor is there any evidence that they thought all bad guys and beasts were female. Not at all. And the pronoun, the, the third person pronoun is ungendered. They don't have a he versus she. There's just one word. I guess it's like our they these days. So you can't always tell whether they're imagining femaleness or maleness when they talk about a being. Interesting. Huh. So it's, it's actually even difficult to tell if, if you're talking about a god or a goddess or, or something in, in the record. Exactly. And, and many of them were probably both sort of, I guess, non-binary, as we would say today, that is, or at least in some villages or in the minds of some priests, some of these divine figures were not entirely masculine or entirely feminine, we think. That is fascinating. My last question was, uh, how did Europeans appropriate and change the stories of goddesses in Aztec culture to impose their own sense of the patriarchy or Christianity, which I think we've basically covered, but do you have anything else to add? I would only say that, right, they were very interested in making it resemble the Greek pantheon as much as possible so to reduce it to sort of comprehensibility. So they did define certain ones as gods and certain ones as goddesses. Um, but it's when we look at the Nahuatl sources that we begin to think, actually, masculinity and femininity seem to be a little more flexible when you're talking about divinities. Not on Earth. On Earth, you had to accept a man's role or a woman's role, pretty much. Okay. You could have homosexual sex, but you, as a, in terms of your social role, you had to accept a man. But amongst the divinity, there seems to have been evidence that it was as complex as you would expect the divine to be. And the Spaniards didn't hold with that. So we get a, a, an actual pantheon with certain gods and certain goddesses. Um, probably is not an accurate list. Thank you so much for coming on the show. This has been such a great time. <laughs> yeah. It's been a delight. Thank you so much. I really had a lot of fun. Thank you. You're welcome. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. -ba -ba.